The word of the Lord comes to us today from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 18, the final verses of 2 Peter. So we'll be concluding this series through 1 and 2 Peter today. It's been a joyful uh, journey for me to study these books closely and proclaim them to you. How we're finishing up uh, today. Page 1019, if you have one of our red Bibles. I invite you to stand once more as we honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we have heard your word, and now we pray for the blessing of your spirit. And know that you who are a good heavenly father, know how to give good gifts to your children. So would you bless us by making your word fruitful in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In his song, Creed, the late Rich Mullins sets the words of the Apostles' Creed to music. The Apostles' Creed is a basic statement of Christian beliefs, doctrine. If you have trouble memorizing it, you want to memorize it, one good practice would be to listen to Rich Mullins' song, Creed, over and over because he set it to music and you'd memorize it very easily. But he has intermixed with the words of the Apostles' Creed a chorus that goes like this. I believe what I believe is what makes me who I am. I did not make it. No, it is making me. It is the very truth of God, not the invention of any man. I love those lines. They're so refreshing to hear uh, coming from a contemporary Christian artist. Now, he, he did pass away maybe 20 years ago or so, but still an artist of the modern era saying that kind of thing about doctrine. Such a good and refreshing thing to hear because I think far too many evangelicals think that doctrine is, is more or less this thing that gets in the way of following Jesus. It's, uh, it's that dry, dusty, divisive stuff that really doesn't matter as long as you love Jesus. Well, Peter's point in this letter has been that doctrine matters tremendously. And that false doctrine will lead you on a pathway toward wickedness and ungodly practice. And that therefore, consequently, what we need is true sound doctrine to guide us in the right way. Because what we believe inevitably affects the way that we live. And Peter has taken on false teachers in this letter. He's, he's warned against them in chapter 2, and then he calls them scoffers in chapter 3. Specifically, scoffers who deny the second coming of Christ. 
and uh, we will look at what some of the implications of that are as we look at, at these verses today. But they deny that Christ is going to come, and they assume that everything is just going to go on as it always has. If Christ never comes, there will be no final judgment, and of course, no new creation to come, in which righteousness dwells, as Peter had said in verse 13. And so we see from reading 2 Peter that false doctrine leads to wicked practice. We should conclude then that sound doctrine leads to faithful practice. Now this is not a guarantee. Uh, There's nothing necessarily automatic about it. There are plenty of people who believe sound doctrine who can cross all their theological T's, dot all their theological I's, and yet who do not live godly lives. Because simply knowing sound doctrine is not enough, it also must be grasped with a heart that honestly seeks to love God. So I'm not arguing that sound doctrine is sufficient for godliness. It's not a sufficient condition. But I would argue it is a necessary one. That is, you may not be guaranteed to be godly by knowing the truth. But if you don't know the truth, you definitely will not be able to be godly. Because doctrine is what leads the way in knowing God, knowing who He is, knowing what He has planned and revealed to us. And so, as we work through this passage today, I'm going to unfold a doctrine that Peter lays out, and then I'm going to show how Peter shows implications that flow out of that doctrine, uh, three of them in particular. So, we're going to start first with the doctrine, uh, the doctrine that Peter gives us. The final judgment will come. The apparent delay is only a sign of God's patience. The doctrine, the final judgment will come. The apparent delay is only a sign of God's patience. I'll give you a minute to write that down. As I said in the first service, Lee and Tom are going to mock me over this, that I have a long sermon point, because I mock them a lot over their sermon points. But here I am with a colon and a semicolon in the same sermon point, and I just want to get it out there, get ahead of the story before it comes at me tomorrow. Well, I wanted to to be comprehensive in what Peter's saying here, and that is that it's not just that the final judgment will definitely come, it is that what we perceive as delay now is actually not a delay. It's God being patient with us, and God holding out to us the hope of salvation. And he's actually already made that point. In all of chapter 3, Peter has been taking on this false teaching that Christ will not come again. So for example, if you look back up to verses 3 and 4, Peter says, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were, from the beginning of creation. Now, if you assume that the world is just going to keep going on as it is, there's never going to be a final judgment, then what you're saying is that there's never going to be a day when God gives a definitive answer to sin. And if that's the case, we would draw the conclusion that God is not really opposed to sin. He's just going to let it go on and never answer it, never do anything about it. God is not opposed to sin, and if he's not, then if if God has no standards, then guess what? There are no standards. We've really just defined sin out of existence. 
And a moment's reflection will indicate that we live in an age that is permeated with this kind of thinking. I don't think the average person you meet today truly and honestly believes that there is a final judgment coming. And as a result, we live in the implications of that as a culture where we have no real objective moral standards. Without real objective moral standards, what are we left with? Desires. That's it. All we have are the desires of the individual to guide us in moral reflection. And so desires then become elevated to this position of unquestionable uh, supremacy. So, for example, if a man says, I desire to be a woman, we're at the point in our culture where we don't say, you're a man, you need to conform to reality. We say, okay, we will now conform reality to your desire. We will remake the whole world because of you. If a woman says, I desire to marry a woman, we're at the point in our culture where we don't say, that's not what marriage is. We say, okay, we will now recategorize, reframe, reorient marriage so that it can take in what your desire is. Your desire is sovereign and supreme, and the world must conform because we don't have any real standards to appeal to. That would be the implication of the scoffers, that sin is really not even a category anymore, and we can live simply according to our desires. So Peter has already addressed that in verses 1 to 13. Here in verse 15, he repeats one of the arguments that he made previously. In verse 15, he begins and he says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Peter reinterprets the apparent delay here. He, he says, don't assume that because Christ hasn't come yet and it's been so many years that therefore he's not going to come and there will be no judgment, that there are no moral standards. He says, rather count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Recognize that the fact Christ hasn't returned yet is only an indication of how, God, how much patience God has with sinners and how much opportunity He gives for the salvation of sinners. It's an expression of God's heart, but by definition, patience doesn't last forever. I want to speak for a moment to those of you who are outside of Christ. And, and what I mean is, if, if you've never professed faith in Christ through baptism, to identify yourself publicly with Christ, or perhaps you have, but you're not walking with Him, you're not fighting sin in your life, you're living for sin and yourself instead of Him, and you give no evidence that you truly know Him. I want to speak to you for a minute. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon in the 1700s, a sermon, you, if you've been to high school, you've probably heard it before, studied it, called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And in this sermon, Edwards unfolded this doctrine for his hearers. It goes like this, there is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. Now, what Edwards means by that is this. Every moment that a, a wicked man who is outside of Christ draws breath is sheer grace. God does not owe a single breath to that person. And he presses this to his hearers at one point in the sermon when he says, 
Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead. And to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. And your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and best contrivance and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. Were it not for the sovereign pleasure of God, the earth would not bear you one moment. What that means to you if you are not in Christ today is this. What keeps you out of hell now is not your good health. It's not your own righteousness. It is the mere grace of God. It is the fact that God has decided that for now, you get to live a little longer. And that's it. That is it. There is nothing else. Nothing is owed to you whatsoever. And that's the point Edwards wants to make. You need to grasp the seriousness of your situation and take hold of the mediator. See, God's purpose, God's patience serves the purpose of your salvation. You are in a precarious situation if you're outside of Christ, but I want to proclaim to you today that as long as you draw breath and as long as Christ has not yet come, you have opportunity now. You have opportunity now to embrace Him by faith and to find forgiveness of your sins and deliverance from this wrath that is to come. Do not despise that gift. Do not despise what God holds out to you as your opportunity to turn and to be saved. You may, you may say to yourself, well, my sins are too great. Christ is greater. You may say to yourself, I've, I've run in sin for so long. For so many years I've given myself over to sin. It would take too long to atone for. No, it can be atoned for. It can be wiped away in a moment of faith. A single moment of faith can wipe away your entire past life. That is what Peter's saying here. Count the patience of God as salvation. Salvation is held out to you now. Do not despise this gift, but turn to Christ in faith. Now, Peter also brings up Paul in these verses. As he goes on at the end of verse 15, he says, Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Now, why would Peter bring up Paul? I think it's because the scoffers, the false teachers, were also appealing to Paul. They were seizing on certain statements in Paul's letters and pulling them out of context and trying to make a point that actually wasn't Paul's point. Paul actually acknowledges that people did that to him in... Uh, in his letter to the Romans. So um, you have here a situation where Paul will say certain things that if you just pull them out of context, you could draw a wrong conclusion from them. We are justified by faith alone, not by works of the law. We are not under law, but under grace. Well, you could take that to mean we are not under any kind of moral standards as Christians. Is that what Paul's saying? No, of course not. 
And if you understand what he's saying in the whole context, you can see that clearly. But Peter says, I think here, when he says Paul has some things hard to understand, I don't think he means Paul's not a clear writer. I think what he means is Paul, maybe a little bit more than others, is, has more of those kind of things in his writings, things that can be pulled out and twisted. And apart from the whole context, can be made to say things that Paul never said. But the false teachers don't just do it to Paul. They do it with the other scriptures anyway. And so Peter raises this point about Paul to make the the larger point that Paul is not on the side of the scoffers. But I did want to point out uh, a couple of observations about what Peter says about Paul's writings here. Very interesting for our doctrine of Scripture. Peter says in verse 15 that Paul wrote according to the wisdom given to him. He wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. Now to you... If we're thinking of Peter's audience here, that may mean he's referring to Paul's letter to the Galatians, perhaps Paul's letter to the Ephesians or Colossians. Um, But he's saying that Paul did not write according to his own ideas. He wrote according to the wisdom given to him from God. And thus, Peter's affirming there that Paul wrote his letters under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to produce God's own words. And that's why in verse 16... You notice Peter says that the false teachers twist the other scriptures just like they do Paul's letters. Now, when you say it that way, what you're saying is this thing belongs in the same category as these other things. They twist Paul's letters just like they do the other scriptures. Paul's letters must be in that category of scripture. Now, there are numerous places in the New Testament where the word scripture is used, and and it's always used to refer to God's own words in writing. And the appeal is made to Old Testament books quoted as scripture, referred to as scripture. So it's a a very clear understanding throughout the New Testament that the Old Testament is God's own word to us. But there are two verses where a New Testament author seems to refer to other New Testament books as scripture. You can imagine it would have been harder to do that because the New Testament is in process of being written and it's hard to refer to something that's still in production. But But there are two occasions we seem to have where Paul, in 1 Timothy 5.18, appears to quote the book of Deuteronomy and then the Gospel of Luke, and he refers to both as Scripture. And then you have here the, the other occasion where Peter, the apostle, refers to the writings of Paul, the apostle, and puts them in the category Scripture. Now, I'm belaboring this point, but why? It's because we must understand that our doctrine of Scripture, our understanding of what the Bible is, is based on the Bible itself. We understand what the Bible is because the Bible tells us what it is. We are not dependent on some other body or person, such as a pope or the institutional church, to tell us what the Bible is. The church can bear witness to what the Bible is, but the church cannot establish what it is. The church does not give authority to the Scripture. The Pope does not give authority to the Scripture. The Scripture's authority is self-attesting because God is self-attesting. And thus, this is one of those passages that should be part of your, your tool belt when you think in terms of where do we see the Bible telling us what the Bible is. This is one of those verses. That's really more of a side note uh, in this sermon. Peter is making the larger point that we must think rightly about the return of Christ, namely that He will come, that final judgment will come, and the apparent delay until then is merely a sign that God is being patient. It is not a sign that He has abandoned His plan uh, 
to come again. This is the sound doctrine we are to believe. How then are we to live in light of it? And so that brings us to our second point, applications. Applications, and I want to make three of them from the other verses. Three particular applications. If Christ is going to return, and if the final judgment is in fact going to come, what should we do now during the time of God's patience? How does this doctrine direct us? First, live a life of repentance. According to verse 14, live a life of repentance. Peter says in verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, these refers to the new heavens and the new earth, he just referred to in verse 13, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish, and at peace. Peter says, make every effort. Put forth effort and energy so that when Christ comes, you will be found before him without spot or blemish and at peace. There's two different senses in which Peter might mean without spot or blemish. And I could be wrong about how I interpret this, but One possibility is he's speaking of being without spot or blemish in a legal sense, that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and that we stand before God on the last day in utter perfection because it is not our righteousness but Christ's that stands in for us, and and that we hold to that by faith, and that is the legal basis for us to receive eternal life. I wholeheartedly embrace that truth. I would die for that truth. But I don't think that's Peter's referent here. I think Peter's actually referring to being without spot or blemish in a different sense. I think he means, on the last day, let us make it our ambition now that we will be without any overt stains on our character that are the result of us failing to make war on sin. And so what he, he's not envisioning that we will be perfect. Christians sin. That's, that's obvious, right? You know your own heart if you're a Christian today. Christians still sin. The point is not that we won't sin. The point is that Christians do not commit themselves to sin, entrust themselves to sin, become comfortable with sin. Christians don't make peace with sin, at least not for long. At some point, the Holy Spirit will bring conviction. And so... Peter is telling us here, make war on sin in your own heart and life so that on the last day you may be without spot or blemish. And then he says, and at peace. And I think this means at peace with God when Christ comes. Again, peace is an objective reality accomplished by Christ, but it is also worked out subjectively. It's worked out in our own experience because if you are at peace with your sin, you are necessarily at war with God. Because what is sin? Sin is rebellion against God. And so to accept sin, to become comfortable with it, to make peace with it, is to set yourself at war with God. Peter says on that day when he comes, be at peace with him by making war on sin, by living a life of repentance. And that's something that is daily, I believe, in the Christian life. It's something that arises from an honesty with ourselves. An honesty, an ability to look into our own hearts and to say, I'm still royally messed up. 
but I have a great Savior. And I can be royally messed up and have a great Savior and still make it. And so I have the freedom to look honestly at what's going on in my heart, to be honest about it, and to be open with God about it, to bring it to the light so that it can be put to death. It's the only way you'll ever deal with sin. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poverty of spirit is recognizing how much you don't have it together in yourself. And so think of it this way. When Jesus taught us his model prayer in Matthew 6, 9 to 13, we often call it the Lord's Prayer, he gave us a a framework for how we should pray and what we should ask God for. And one of the things we are to ask God for is our daily bread. Have you ever thought about this? How often should you ask for daily bread? Daily, right? Otherwise, it's not really daily, is it? So, we should pray for our daily bread. That means Jesus is envisioning this framework for prayer is something we're going to apply to ourselves daily. And the very next request after daily bread is, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. In other words, I think Jesus envisions, this is a daily practice of us coming to the Lord again and opening our hearts to him and saying, here's where I still have sin. Here's where I've still messed up. Confessing openly and honestly to the Lord every single day where you struggle, where you have sin, bringing that to the light so it can be put to death. And that cannot be done without repentance. You cannot honestly confess sin to God if you're not turning from that sin at the same time. And so Jesus teaches us a prayer that builds daily repentance into our lives which shows we are in need of daily repentance. In the Middle Ages, the the most uh, important translation of the Bible that was used in the church and among scholars was the Latin Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Bible. And if you read the Latin Vulgate at Matthew 4.17, where Jesus said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it actually comes across this way in translation. Do penance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And to a medieval person hearing that, the assumption would be, oh yeah, Jesus was telling us to go, say, once a year to the priest and do the sacrament of penance. As long as I do that once a year, I'm probably good. And so in response to this teaching, and in many other things that were going on, Martin Luther wrote the document we know today as the 95 Theses. And the very first of his 95 theses said this, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He willed the entire lives of believers to be one of repentance. You see, repentance is not a sacrament that we perform once a year. It is a daily pattern of life. It is the whole shape of the Christian life, of bringing sin to the light and killing it over and over and over again so that we may make every effort to be found before him without spot or blemish and at peace when he comes. That's the first application. Second is this one. Guard yourself from those who will lead you into sin. Guard yourself from those who will lead you into sin. Now this this applies first and foremost to false teachers, 
There may be other ways in which you could see it applying in your life. But this is the point Peter makes in verse 17, where he says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, knowing, namely, that false teachers twist the Scriptures and try to make their case deceptive, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. His point is, do not fall away from the faith because you allow yourself to be duped by twist, uh, Scripture-twisting false teachers. You see, it is one thing to be tempted by a sin that you know is wrong. This probably happened before in your life. You've known that, that feeling. Like, I know full well that what I desire here is wrong, but I still feel the pull to want it. That's actually different from the experience of having it taught to you or proclaimed to you that sin is not actually wrong. That God has actually blessed sin. And what you thought was sin may not be sin at all. Every reading cycle, as I lead the uh, apprentices here, we go through this book uh, entitled God and the Gay Christian by Matthew Vines. It's an interesting book. It's a unique book in some ways because Matthew Vines claims to be an evangelical. Uh, and he claims that as an evangelical, he upholds the Bible as the supreme authority for faith and practice. He believes the Bible is inspired by God, inerrant, infallible. And whatever it says, we must obey. And then he proceeds to make an argument going through passage after passage in his book to say, if you look closely, if you understand properly, the Bible does not condemn faithful, monogamous, same-sex relationships. He makes that argument at length, and I have the apprentices read that because I want them to understand the arguments that are out there. I want them to understand arguments that they almost certainly will encounter at some point in their ministries and be able to answer those arguments. So what's going on in a book like that is you have a gifted writer and an intelligent author, and he's doing things with the Bible that to the average person can look quite impressive. And so the average person picks up this book to read and is thrown off by how eloquent and how, how neat it all looks and how, how, how he seems like he does want to uphold the Bible's authority. And it's just a short step from there and say, well, maybe what I've been taught my whole life and the church has believed for 2,000 years is wrong after all, and this is the guy who came and figured it out. Um, it's, it's tempting to run it, especially when drawing that conclusion can make your life so much easier in so many ways, right? How do you guard yourself from that? Three tips for you for how I want you to guard yourself from that. Number one, stay immersed in the Bible. Stay immersed in the Bible. Read it. Meditate on it, pray it, study it, hear it proclaimed and taught regularly because the better you know Scripture, the better you inhabit Scripture's own categories of thought and teaching, the more you'll be able to spot when something sounds off. So stay immersed in the Bible. You need it. But in addition to that, stay immersed in the local church. You can tell I'm a Baptist. I love that word immersed. Stay immersed in the local church. 
in the church, wherever you're a member, if it's this church, if it's some other church, stay immersed with that body of believers where people know you, where they love you, where they're involved in your life, where pastors can know you and shepherd you and teach you and guard you. And when questions come up, when things come up that you're not able to make sense of, or you have ideas and you want to know more, you have trusted family members with you who are ready to help you with that. You have pastors who are eager to hear from you. Don't assume that that a pastor is ever, at this church, a pastor would ever shame you for raising an honest question. We will not. We will love you. We want you to bring those questions to us when you have them. We want you to come to us and to say, I need more guidance here. I need more teaching. In the context of a body where you're being discipled, where your primary focus of discipleship is this group of people who know you, you are protected. So immerse yourself. The more you move to the periphery of the church, the more the devil sees you, like Lee has mentioned before, like a lion picking off the weak in a herd of whatever lions hunt. I can't remember now. They hunt something. The more you move to the periphery, the more you're outside the realm of being guarded by the church. So immerse yourself in the Bible and in the church. And then third, I would say this tip. Learn from the past. Learn from the past. I am convinced there is far more wisdom in the past than in the present. And that's simply a law of averages. Think about how much time there has been in the past versus now. Um, There's far more wisdom for us to gain from the past. But the, the thing about learning from the past is past generations, yes, they had their blind spots. And we are all too eager to point those out over and over again, aren't we? And feel righteous. They had their blind spots, and we can see those pretty clearly living where we do now, but we don't see our blind spots as easily, do we? What is it about the past, then, that can help us most is that it can show us our own blind spots. It can highlight for us the ways that we think that are new, that are different, that may lead us astray. So immerse yourself in learning from the past, whether through reading good books or or reading books of teachers who who are mediating those ideas to you. Or, by coming to Sunday school, starting next Sunday in the back building, where we have classes, some of which are devoted to retrieving ideas from the past, so that they may help us walk faithfully in the present. We need 2,000 years of tradition, history, handed down to us to give us wisdom and to show us uh, what problems have already been addressed. What has the church already argued about and decided on? And when we come across new ideas today, chances are that idea has been dealt with before. And it would serve us well to go back and to see what was said in the past. So guard yourself from those who will lead you into sin. And then a third point of application, finally. Pursue Christ. Pursue Christ in verse 18. Peter tells us here, essentially, the fight against sin cannot be purely negative. What I mean by that is that sin stands opposed to Christ. And that when we live a life of repentance, we are by necessity pursuing Christ. You can't really do one without the other. You can't fight sin by focusing on sin that you want to fight. 
Have you ever tried to diet by focusing on the foods you can't eat? How did that work out for you? By the same token, you cannot fight sin in your life for its own sake. Your mindset must be, I would have more of Christ. I would know Him more. And because I would, I must get rid of anything that opposes Him. That's how we fight sin, but we must pursue Christ above all. It's an interesting command Peter gives us in verse 18, because he says at the end of his letter, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I find it interesting that he commands us to grow. Growth is not normally something that we command of others. Parents, have you ever commanded your children to grow? You probably didn't. You probably just noticed it happened. It was this mysterious process that was outside of anyone's conscious will, and it just happened. And yet Peter commands us to grow here. More than that, he commands us to grow in grace. Now, grace is God's favor upon us. Grace would speak of divine action. We are to grow in something that God does? How can that be possible? Wouldn't Peter be better to say, wait passively for God's grace to grow upon you? No, Peter doesn't think that way. I think what he means when he says grow in grace is this. Grow in your ability to understand and to take in the grace of God. Grow in your ability. Enlarge your heart to grasp the love of God in Christ for you. That is the center of sanctification. That is the heart of Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3 where he asks God to to give power to his readers, the Ephesians, that they may have power to grasp the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that they may be filled up unto all the fullness of God. Grow in taking in God's love for you in Christ, which means meditating on who He is and what He has done for you and living in light of it. Really, when Peter says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I think he's He's saying the same thing in two different ways. Grow in grace, which is the same thing as saying grow in knowledge of Jesus Christ, knowing Him personally in relationship. Those are the same thing. One of the stories I love from the Gospels is Mark chapter 2, where four men bring their friend who's a paralytic and he's lying on a, a bed They bring him to Jesus to be healed. But when they get to where Jesus is at the house, there's such a a tight gathering, a crowd there listening, that they can't get in the door. So naturally, they do what anyone would do in that situation. They, They walk up to the roof of that building and they tear open the roof so they can let him down on ropes. Who hasn't done that, right? No, the the roofs back then were accessible. They were able to be torn up that way, but this, this was a weird thing to do. One of the reasons I love this story is because of the social awkwardness that must have been involved. If you think about, if you were in the crowd inside that house, 
And the people are there to see this man, this amazing man, listen to him. And they're hanging on his every word. And he's talking to them. He's teaching. And all of a sudden, everything comes to a stop as they hear this noise coming from the roof. And there's this debris falling down on people's heads and maybe Jesus' own head as you look up and there's these goofballs up on the roof and they're tearing it up. Everybody's looking at him, and Peter's probably sitting there right next to Jesus, and this is probably Peter's house. And he's looking up at the goofballs who are tearing up his own roof. All eyes are on these men, and in that moment, they would have been the focus of attention because they were doing something that was extremely weird. Uh, When I was a kid, I once set off the emergency door alarm at Golden Corral. I mean, what kid hasn't done that, right? But I was so embarrassed. So embarrassed because I pushed on this door not knowing what was going to happen. All of a sudden, the alarm goes off. Everybody's looking at me. And I do not want to be the focus of attention in a situation where I've just disturbed everybody. I, I think you can resonate with that. Well, these men, they've just disturbed everybody. And there they are. Lowering down their friend to Jesus. And they're thinking, we don't care what these people think of us. And we don't doubt what Jesus is going to do. They knew his heart. They, they did not expect Jesus was going to rebuke them for causing a disturbance. And when they let down their friend, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And their heart in that moment was to say, We will get to Jesus, no matter what. No matter what, we will get to Him. Because He is the most important thing. And if you read that story, you might be tempted to say, well, they had a pressing need. Their friend needed to be healed, and so it's it's obvious why they wanted to, to go to such length to get to Jesus, because they had this pressing need. And if I'm ever in a situation... Where I have a pressing need, I know where to go. And if that's your conclusion, you've missed the point. Because the point is, you are not any less needy than that man on the mat. You are not any less needy at all. And the most important thing in your life, whoever you are, is that you get to Jesus. Is that you pursue Him. That you wake up every day and you let this be what drives you. Paul's words from Philippians 3, 10 and 11. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Make it your life's goal to pursue Christ. If you're fighting sin without pursuing Christ, you're just playing games. There really is no such thing. This is not about your sin. This is about Him. First and foremost, He is above all. And that's how Peter ends the letter. With a doxology to Christ. Doxologies, words of praise, are not common in the New Testament directly to Christ. They're they're more often to God the Father 
But Peter, the very author who began his letter by referring to our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, now says at the very end, to him, to Christ, be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This Jesus we pursue is no mere man. He's no mere creature of God. He is himself God in the flesh. He is God revealed to us, God given for us. I believe what I believe is what makes me who I am. I did not make it. No, it is making me. It is the very truth of God, not the invention of any man. Doctrine directs our life and thus our doctrine of the final judgment to come and of God's patience now until it comes. It must motivate us to make war on sin in our own hearts, to guard ourselves from influences that would lead us into sin, and above all, to pursue Christ every day of our lives. So as a church, we're going to pursue Christ now as we do every Sunday by coming again to the Lord's table to eat and drink in remembrance of Him. So my invitation to the table is for you, if you are a believer who's professed your faith publicly in baptism and you're in a fellowship with a local church that oversees you, if, if that's you, then you're welcome to come today. If that's not you, we do want you to come to the table. We just don't want it today. We want you to come once you have come to Christ in faith, once you've been baptized, once you are in that covenantal relationship where you have oversight from a, a group of believers. And so if that's you today, we, we would love to hear more from you about being baptized or taking whatever next step it may be in your life. So feel free to talk to one of us after the service about that. But for the rest of you who are uh, baptized believers and are coming today, we invite you to come. I'm going to invite uh, our, our ushers to come and prepare. And uh, our procedure for coming to the table is uh, that these, these brothers will be masked and gloved and they'll be setting out one serving and it has, it has the juice on top and the bread on the bottom. That cannot be reversed, by the way. Uh, you couldn't do it the opposite way. I was asked that last week, but you can't. You really can't. We tried it. Uh, you just come by, you take one serving, and the way you'll come is uh, we'll start with the front row and overflow, and just come by the outside, come by, grab a serving, and then go back to your seat, uh, and we can do it that way. If you are, again, if you're not going to partake today, but you'd still like to walk forward and just go through the line, you're welcome to do that, or you're welcome to stay at your seat, however you want to do it, but... but um, we invite you to come now after we pray. So would you pray with me? And then we can come to the table. Father, we praise you for Christ, for his broken body and his shed blood. And we pray that as we eat and drink again in remembrance of him, we may be strengthened in faith and proclaim his death until he comes. For we pray in his name. Amen. So front row here and overflow section if you'd like to come now.